Dr. Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1983 for a groundbreaking DNA discovery. His discovery was, said the Washington Post, a world-changing invention that led to, among other things, the release of several innocent people from death row and the identification of exactly whose DNA was on Monica Lewinsky's dress. After winning the prize, he hired himself out as a consultant. His most famous client was O.J. Simpson. Well, Mullis' discovery was an invention of the polymerase chain reaction PCR technique an organism's genome is stored inside DNA molecules, but analysing this genetic information required a large quantity of DNA. Mullis's invention enabled a small amount of DNA to be copied in large quantities over a short period of time. By applying heat, the DNA's molecules, two strands, are separated and the DNA building blocks that have been added are bonded to each strand. With the help of the enzyme DNA polymerase, new DNA chains are formed and the process can then be repeated. The Washington Post continues, The idea came to Mullis in a flash one night in 1983 as he was driving to his cabin in the Mendocino woods, the same cabin where he encountered the glowing talking raccoon. And that's not the only strange thing. They say he knew it would work just as instantly he knew he'd win the Nobel Prize. At Cetus, where Mullis worked at one point, he was a legendary character, they say. Famous less for his scientific brilliance than for his prodigious womanising and for engaging in fisticuffs with another scientist after drinking too many margaritas at a company retreat. Well, former co-worker at Cetus Corp, Paul Abersold, told the Washington Post he could be very hot-headed. He had an intensity that is almost unimaginable. Well, did this have anything to do with him apparently seeing a glowing talking raccoon? Vivacious, eccentric, Dr. Mullis owned a beloved cabin in the woods of Northern California. On a Friday night in August 1985, two years after his DNA breakthrough, he drove up to the cabin. He arrived at about midnight after a drive of three hours. He took the groceries he'd purchased on the way up into the cabin, switched on all the lights and headed immediately out with the flashlight in hand to the outside lavatory situated approximately 50 feet to the side of the cabin. Bill Chalker, investigator of strange phenomena for many years, says he never got there. He talked to Mullis at length prior to his death in 2019. Dr Mullis would also go on to explain what happened next in his autobiography of 1998 called Dancing Naked in the Minefield. As Mullis set off for the lavatory that night, he writes, at the far end of the path, under a fir tree, there was something glowing. I pointed my flashlight at it. It made it whiter. It seemed to be a raccoon. I wasn't frightened. Later, I wondered if it could have been a hologram projected from God knows where. Well, next, the most unexpected thing happened. The raccoon spoke. Good evening, doctor, it said. Mullis says, I said something back. I don't remember what. Probably, hello. The next thing I remember, it was early in the morning. I was walking along the road uphill from my house. Mullis had absolutely no idea how he had ended up there, but he knew that despite the grass being covered in early morning dew, his feet and trousers were entirely dry. He was no longer holding his flashlight. When he reached his cabin, he saw that all the lights were still on and his groceries were still lying on the floor where he'd left them. Six hours had passed between him walking towards the lavatory and then finding himself wandering around outside in the wet grass. Later that day, he took a walk outside. 
attempting to find any clues that might explain what had happened during those last six hours. He couldn't find his torch anywhere, and the strangest thing was that in a section of the woods that he had always called his favourite part, the most beautiful part of the woods, this spot now filled him with an overwhelming sensation of terrible dread. He found he could not stay there a moment longer. Well, on a return trip to the cabin about a year later, his feelings about that most beautiful part of the woods persisted. So much so that he got his rifle out and blasted the wooded section, as if, he says, he was John Wayne. The strangeness didn't stop there. Apparently, his daughter Louise went through a similar experience, though her father had not ever told her about his experience. It would transpire that she too appears to have vanished in time after walking down the same path. In her case, she apparently reappeared on the same path approximately three hours later, notwithstanding a frantic search by her fiancé, who had been shouting for her and calling her name for the entire duration. Dr Mullis concluded in his book, I wouldn't try to publish a scientific paper about these things because I can't do any experiments. I can't make glowing raccoons appear. I can't buy them from a scientific supply to study. And I can't cause myself to be lost again for several hours. I don't know what happened. It's what science calls anecdotal because it only happened in a way that you can't reproduce. But it happened. Curiously, Bill Chalker, the investigator of anomalies, adds to this yet another person also encountered the glowing talking raccoon too. A friend of Dr Melis, who also did not know about Melissa's experience, nor his daughter's experience, was visiting the cabin for the first time to attend a party after the announcement about Melis receiving the Nobel Prize. And in this case, it seems that the raccoon became a man. Well, this visitor, says Chalker, encountered a small glowing man, which then suddenly enlarged into a full-sized man, who said something like, I'll see you tomorrow. The guest left with a friend without informing anyone about this. They returned to their hotel in the nearby town. However, that night, the man inexplicably found himself outside in the hotel car park, troubled and terrified by the impression that he had somehow been back at the cabin. Well, the following night, the man and his friend returned to Mullis' cabin, where the party was still in, in full swing. As the man arrived this time, he was shocked to see the full-sized man who he had seen as a small apparition the previous night, driving up in a car. Chilka says this was too much for the visitor he left in a panic, holding Mullis somehow responsible. Sometime later, in tears, he revealed the full story to Mullis. Mullis told him this sounded like his neighbour and he checked with his neighbour who told him that yes, he had been at the party but that he had not been anywhere near the property the previous night not looking as a glowing raccoon or a small glowing man that enlarged, says Chalker. If it had been just Dr Mullis, that would be one thing but two other people who had no knowledge of the other people's peculiar experiences also experience the same oddities. It's very strange. Throughout history, there are tales of people meeting the double of themselves, their doppelganger. When famous poet Percy Shelley was living with writer of Frankenstein, Mary Wollstonecraft, in Italy, he was said to be bereft over the deaths of three of his children, who had died soon after their births. 
one day, on June the 24th, 1812, he went for a walk alone, and his wife later wrote of what happened to him in a letter to a friend. Shelley saw the figure of himself as he walked on the terrace, and it said to him, How long do you mean to be content? On another occasion, a friend was staying with them, Mrs Jane Williams, who was described by Shelley's wife as a woman of sensibility, who has not imagination and is not in the slightest degree nervous, neither in dreams or otherwise. Mrs Williams was standing inside the house gazing out of a window that looked out onto the terrace, when she saw, as she thought, Shelley passed by the window, as he often was, without coat or jacket. He passed again, and he passed both times the same way. The way in which he was going had no route to get back except past the window again or over a 20-foot wall. She was struck at seeing Shelley pass twice like this and looking out and seeing him no more. She cried, Good God, can Shelley have leapt from the wall? She was told that Shelley was not at the villa at the time that she'd seen him. Shelley's final encounter with his doppelganger came when he was walking alone on the beach. Again, he encountered himself. On this occasion, the doppelganger was looking at him, but his hand was pointing out to the sea. Not long after this, Shelley's body would be found in the sea after he drowned, while sailing back from Liverno in a storm in the Bay of Spezia on July 8, 1822. He was a month short of his 30th birthday. The boat had been custom-built for Shelley in Genoa, but it sank. Some, including Shelley's friend Edward John Trelawney, said Shelley lacked the seamanship skills to have undertaken this seven-hour journey with two friends, retired Navy officer Edward Elacar Williams and boat hand young Charles Vivian. Well, Richard Holmes of The Guardian newspaper, however, says, despite what Trelawney implied, Shelley had considerable experience sailing boats, from schoolboy expeditions up the Thames to sailing single-handed down the Arno, the Sergio, and beyond Liverno out to sea. He had successfully survived perilous incidents on the Rhine, on Lake Geneva with Byron, and on the Pisan Canal with Williams. However, crucially, he adds, it was true that Shelley was a river sailor, not, in other words, not a sea sailor. Mary Shelley later claimed in her Note on Poems of 1822 that the design of the boat had been defective and had never been seaworthy. But Richard Holmes of The Guardian says, unknown to Shelley, his boat had a fundamental design fault. A twin master schooner could not simply be scaled down to a small undecked open boat. Some suggested Shelley's sadness over his children's deaths had led him to want to drown himself, while others suggested he'd been attacked by pirates, but there were many who whispered that he'd been assassinated for political reasons while out to sea. Shelley's boat was found ten miles offshore after the storm had sunk the boat. Some suggested it had been rammed, for one side was caved in. His friend Trelawney said that William's shirt was partly drawn over the head and he was missing one boot. He felt that this meant Williams had been in the act of undressing for bed when he died. Shelley's father was a baron in Parliament. Shelley himself was staunch in his own radical and outspoken anti-establishment political views. Biographer Richard Holmes says Shelley's political interests included radical reform of the Houses of Parliament, 
de-establishment of the Anglican Church, formation of trade unions and universal suffrage. In a letter to Mr Lee Hunt, who would later become his friend, Shelley writes, My father is in Parliament and on attaining 21, I shall, in all probability, fill his vacant seat. His letter also mentions, The ultimate intention is to introduce a meeting of such enlightened, unprejudiced members of the community, a methodical society which should be organised so as to resist the coalition of the enemies of liberty, the very great influence which some years since was gained by Illuminism a society of equal might establish rational liberty. Is he referring to the founding of the Illuminati? Well, Hunt would be imprisoned for libel in 1821, and Shelley, Lord Byron and Hunt would publish a radical political journal called The Liberal. Contemporary Professor Alexander Djokovic says, On the basis of several witness reports and strong material evidence, and on the basis of political circumstances, the final conclusive answer, in that some people in earlier times perhaps had an inkling of, but didn't dare to say, Shelley was murdered by the British secret services, namely secret agents were sent from England, and they bribed a crew of Italian fishermen to sink his boat and drown him, because he kept attacking and drastically insulting the British government and parliament aristocrats, the king, and Christian faith. Well, Shelley's body washed ashore, but the mystery of his death was never really solved. Interestingly, it would seem that Shelley had been attacked before. When Shelley was living in Wales, he claimed he was attacked in the middle of the night. He was living at a house called Tanyalt in 1812, when he claimed a man entered the property and attacked him. The suggestion was that this man was an intelligence agent, although there are other possibilities. Richard Holmes, in Shelley, The Pursuit, says it's said that he had annoyed some of the local residents with his outspoken views and may have even owed some people money. Who knows what really happened? Author Lynn Shepherd End on this says, Within weeks, Shelley had antagonised many of his neighbours, particularly a local landowner named Robert Leeson. On the night of February the 26th, in the midst of a storm, Shelley was apparently the subject of an assassination attempt. He certainly thought it such, and more than one gunshot was heard, but no one but Shelley saw the man who attacked him, even though the supposed assailant came back to the house a second time for the night. Even many of Shelley's friends thought it was some kind of delusion, and years later, the incident was still being referred to in the Tremadoc area as Shelley's ghost. Intriguingly, though, she says Shelley always believed Leeson was the man who tried to murder him, improbable though that suggestion was, and over the next few years this became almost a mania with him. He even claimed he'd seen Leeson following him in London, and once as far away as Pisa. Something was certainly persecuting Shelley, but it wasn't Robert Leeson. Again and again, in his letters and journals, Shelley talks of the doubleness of his own nature, of a dark anti-self. And once he describes himself starting from my own company as if it were that of a fiend, like a ghastly presence ever beside him like his shadow. It was his own self Shelley could not escape, or his doppelganger. In the 1800s, writer Agnes Strickland described a strange incident that occurred during the reign of Elizabeth I. As the Queen lay on her deathbed, one of her ladies-in-waiting, Lady Guildford, went out of the Queen's bedchamber to take some air, when to her dismay she met Her Majesty, as she thought, three or four chambers away. Alarmed at the thought of being discovered leaving the royal patient alone, 
she hurried forward in some trepidation in order to excuse herself when the apparition vanished. She returned, shaken, to the chamber, but there lay the queen still in the same lethargic slumber in which she left her. It has been said that the Empress of Russia, Catherine the Great, was disturbed one night in her bedchamber by her ladies-in-waiting when they were disconcerted to find her there. They explained to her that she was in the throne room. They insisted she was not in bed. She was waiting in the throne room. Well, in disbelief and probably quite angry to be disturbed in such a way by her servants, the Empress followed her ladies-in-waiting into the throne room only to find that an exact copy of herself was indeed waiting there, seated in the royal chair. It was said that her response was to order the royal guards to shoot at the figure. It was not many weeks after this that the Empress died. 16th century English poet and Anglican cleric John Donne was visiting Paris when his wife was at home in England, heavily pregnant. Forty years after his death, In 1675, writer Isaac Walton, who had been a friend to Don, wrote a very strange incident that had occurred back in 1612. Don had accompanied Lord Hay and Sir Robert Drury to Paris. Two days after their arrival, Don was alone in a dining room where the trio had just dined. Half an hour later, Sir Robert returned, where he found Don in such an ecstasy and so altered as to his looks as amazed Sir Robert to behold him. In so much, he said, that he earnestly desired Mr. Dunn to declare what had befallen him in the short time of his absence, to which Mr. Dunn was not able to make a present answer. But after a long and perplexed pause, did at last say, I have seen a dreadful vision since I saw you. I have seen my dear wife pass twice by me through this room, her hair hanging about her shoulders and a dead child in her arms. This I have seen since I saw you. Well, at this, Sir Robert told him he must surely have fallen asleep and been dreaming, to which Don replied, Sir, I cannot be surer than I now live, than that I have not slept, and I am as sure that, at her second appearance, she stopped and looked me in the face, then vanished. The following day, Don was just as insistent that this had been no dream, and as reported in the Mirror of Literature, Amusement and Instruction, he affirmed this vision with a more deliberate and so confirmed a confidence. It would be shortly discovered that his child had indeed died. In another case, Vice Admiral Sir George Tyrone, born 1832, was a British naval admiral who died on June 22, 1893, when his ship HMS Victoria collided with HMS Camperdown during manoeuvres off Tripoli and Lebanon. It was said he had made an unwise if not reckless manoeuvre which led to the collision and as the ship sank, killing hundreds of men, he exclaimed it was all his fault as he drowned in the sea alongside all the other men. At the same time that this tragedy was unfolding, his wife was holding a sumptuous dinner party for friends in Eaton Square in London. Many of the dinner party guests observed Sir George Tyron walk down the large staircase and walk through the dining room but looking only straight ahead and not conversing with anyone. This was recorded by Christina Hoyle, author of A Survey of English Ghost Law in 1950, which also recounts the case of a John Otway Winyard. His ghost was seen by his brother George and Captain Sherbrooke, says Harry East in Divine Madness. 
While they were serving in the 33rd Regiment in Canada, they were in the sitting room reading about four o'clock in the afternoon. Sherbrooke looked up from his book and saw a stranger standing in the room. He was about 22 years old, looked ill, and wore light indoor clothing more suited to England than Canada. He called to George, who recognised his brother, and they together watched as the ghost walked into the bedroom, which had no other exit. Immediately following it in, they found the bedroom empty. Posthumously released writing by Abraham Lincoln includes the following curious incident. On the night of his successful election, Lincoln retired to his chamber, worn out after a tense but jubilant day. He wrote, throwing myself upon a lounge in my chamber. Opposite to where I lay was a bureau with a swinging glass upon it, and looking in that glass I saw myself reflected nearly at full length. But my face, I noted, had two separate and distinct images, the tip of the nose of the one being about three inches from the tip of the other. I was a little bothered, perhaps startled, and got up and looked in the glass. The illusion vanished. On lying down again, I saw it for the second time, plainer, if possible, than before. Then I noticed that one of the faces was a little paler, say five shades, than the other. I got up, and the thing melted away. From the Annals of Psychical Science, Volume 8 of 1905, comes an account of a doppelganger in the British Houses of Parliament. The strange case of the apparition of the House of Commons, it says, last Friday, of the double of Major Sakane Rush has created a great deal of interest. The umpire of the 14th Institute says, shortly before the Easter rising of Parliament for the recess, Major Rush was overtaken by influenza, which developed into neurosia. During the evening of his absence, from the sitting prior to rising for the holidays, his friend, Sir Gilbert Parker, was alarmed to see him seated at near his usual place. Parker said, As I swung round to resume my seat, I was attracted by first seeing Mr. Rush out of his place, and then by the position he occupied. I knew that he had been ill, and in a cheery way, nodded at him and said, I hope you're better. But he uttered no reply and made no sign. This struck me as odd. My friend's position was his and yet not his. He sat hunched up, he was remarkably pallid, his expression was steely. It was altogether a stony presentment, grim, almost resentful. I thought for a moment. Then I turned again to Sirach. He'd vanished. That puzzled me, and at once I went in search of him. I expected to overtake him in the lobby, but Rush was not there. No one had seen him. When later asked, Sirach confirmed that he'd been at home ill on the day, and others too. In Irish folklore, there is the fetch, a supernatural double of a living person. The sighting of a fetch is usually regarded as an omen of impending death, as the appearance of a fetch will usually be followed by that person's death, or the death of someone close to them. Sir Walter Scott used the expression of a fetch in his Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft in 1830, describing a fetch as like a doppelganger or a wraith. Sabine Barring Gold, an Anglican vicar of the 1800s, wrote of his experience with what he calls a fetch. He said, Some years ago, I was walking through the cloisters at Hurst Pierpoint College when I saw, coming towards me, the bursar. I spoke to him. He turned and looked at me, but passed on without a word. I went on to the matron's apartment, and there the man was. I exclaimed, Hello, P. I've just passed you in cloisters. He turned very pale and said, I have not left this room. 
Well, said I, I could swear to an alibi any day. Gold also relates the experience of a musician of the 1700s, Christoph Willibald Reiter van Gluck, who was staying in Ghent in Belgium at the time of the incident. After spending the evening with some friends, he returned to his lodgings on a moonlit evening, where he observed, going before him, a figure that closely resembled himself. It took every turn through the streets, which he was accustomed to take, and finally, on reaching the floor of the apartment, drew out a key, opened it and entered. On this, the musician turned around, went back to his friends, and earnestly entreated to be taken in for the night. Next morning, they accompanied him to his lodgings and found that the heavy wooden beams of the ceiling of Gluck's sleeping room had fallen down in the middle of the night and crushed the bed. According to old German folklore, all living creatures have a spirit double who is invisible but identical to the living person. Doppelganger in Germany means ghostly double or double walker. Well, Reverend Sabine also describes the incident of a Mr H who was one day walking along the street, apparently in good health, when he saw, or supposed, his acquaintance, Mr C, walking before him. He called out to him aloud, but Mr C did not seem to hear him and continued walking on. Mr H quickened his pace for the purpose of overtaking him, but the other increased his also, as if to keep ahead of his pursuer, and proceeded at such a pace that Mr H found it impossible to make up to him. Mr C, on reaching a gate, opened it and passed in, slamming it violently in Mr H's face. Confounded at such treatment from a friend, Mr H opened the gate and looked down the long lane, where to his astonishment, Mr C was nowhere to be seen. Mr H, completely baffled, determined to go to Mr C's house to see him, and was very surprised to find that Mr C was confined to his bed, and had been for the last few days. A couple of weeks later, Mr C now recovered, and at a mutual friend's house, Mr H ran into him again and jokingly told him of the incident in which Mr C had slammed the gate in his face. Mr H told Mr C that it must have been his wraith, and joked he would be dead within a few days. All present laughed, but in a few days Mr C was attacked apparently with a putrid sore throat and died, and within a short period of his death, Mr H was also in his grave. In Patrick Kennedy's Legends book of 1891, he describes the case of a doctor's fetch. He says, In one of our Irish cities, in a room where the mild moonbeams of a summer night were resting on the carpet and a table near the window, Mrs B, wife of a doctor in good standing and esteem, was startled by the appearance of her husband standing near the table and seeming to look with attention on a book that was lying open on it. Now the living and breathing man was lying by her side, apparently asleep, and greatly as she was surprised and affected, she had sufficient command of herself to remain without movement, lest she should expose him to the terror which she herself at that moment experienced. After gazing it for a few seconds, she bent her eyes on her husband to ascertain if his looks were in the direction of the window, but his eyes were closed. The following morning, the doctor set out on his day and met a doctor he knew in the street. He asked the other doctor, Dr C, what his opinion was on fetches. 
Dr. C explained that he believed a fetch was an illusion caused by a disturbed stomach acting upon the excitable brain of a highly imaginative or superstitious person. To this, Dr. B replied, Then I am highly imaginative or superstitious, for I distinctly saw my own outward man last night, standing at the table of my bedroom, clearly distinguishable in the moonlight. I am afraid my wife saw it too, but I have been afraid to speak to her on the subject. The following night, Mrs. B was awoken by her husband having convulsions. She shouted to her housemaid to summon Dr. C and the doctor duly arrived, but soon Dr. B was beyond human aid. In the passionate lamentations, says the author, which the bereaved wife could not restrain in the presence of the physician, she cried out, Oh, the fetch, oh, the fetch. Thank you.